Today on Ag News Daily. Things are looking a little better now than they were even just a a month or so ago. Um, But in general, I would say the ag economy, we're still struggling. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Madison Honkamp reporting the Ag News Daily podcast. And today I am joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you doing today? You know what, Madison, you mentioned your allergies yesterday, and today I mm-hmm. feel like I am starting to get feeling, I mean, I can feel my allergies today, my nose is feeling stuffed up, and I'm thinking it's because we're finally getting some warmer summer weather, the rains are hopefully cross our fingers starting to go away, but we're talking to Ed Valley tomorrow to talk about just what weather patterns are coming, especially for the Corn Belt, but I tell you what, I think it's a good sign. Not a good sign for those of us that have allergies, but a good sign that maybe we're starting to move past this wet, wet season and, and move on to some drier, warmer temps. Yes, definitely. Let's. I do hope the wet season is over for now. Not completely over. I mean, we do still need the rain, but mm-hmm. um, yes, my allergies, they are getting, they're terrible. I had to go to the doctor today and to figure out, see if I needed like stronger allergy medicine or what. But yes, I definitely know your pain. <laughs> I'm over allergy season. And it just started. Really. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it really did. But what do you have for news today, Delaney? Well, because of all the wet weather we've been having, we saw a lot of folks turning to prevent plant. And now, of course, we can put cover crops on those prevent plant acres. But I was reading an interesting article today talking about not only are we switching to more cover crop acres this year, but we're beginning to face challenges. I know farmers don't want to hear another challenge that they're potentially going to have to face this year, but challenges in a seed shortage in primarily those cover crops such as rye, wheat, barley, and oats, they're nearly sold out across the seed industry as well as a lot of those forage grasses such as rye grass other warm season grasses and sorghum, sorghum, so dan grass, some of those grasses we talked about with Daniel Olson, we're starting to see pretty nationwide seed shortage availability there for folks looking to turn and plant some of those acres into cover crops. However, we do know you can plant corn for silage purposes only as a cover crop. And it looks like, according to a Farm Journal survey that they did with U.S. farmers last week, 41% of folks indicated that they were going to plant a cover crop this year and nationwide more farmers are planting cover crops with a acreage with a cover crop acreage increasing by 50% over the past five years. So we've really seen folks transitioning to cover crops and I think this year will certainly help with that since uh, we can now use them for grazing purposes. Yes, definitely. I, I, Hope yeah, I can see them really helping out. Um, but yeah, so hopefully we can kind of see that kind of moving forward as well. Yes, Madison, what do you have for news today? Well, one big thing that I have seen in the news today, Delaney, is more and more articles about the ERS relocation. Mm. I, you know, we kind of thought we saw this put to bed and finished, but. That is not the case, of course. Um, So those employees that have been tapped for relocation do have until July 15th to make a decision whether to kind of stay in their position and be relocated to that Kansas City area or I'm assuming quit kind of 
turn in their resignation. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are set to relocate by August 1st. But the House on Tuesday did pass a five bill fiscal 2020 appropriations package that contained language prohibiting Purdue from relocating ERS or the National Institute of Food and Agriculture out of the Washington, D.C. area. Obviously, they haven't really see how, seen how this will play out. Um, I didn't realize that the House could do that because I know we kind of touched on how the USDA kind of is their own little, it's their department. Mm-hmm. They can make decisions for themselves. They don't have to go through Congress to do it. So I think it'll be definitely very interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, Madison, this is going to be really interesting to watch unfold. And I also read some news about that today, the relocation process. It sounds like from some preliminary, I guess, research or discussions that they've had, it sounds like four out of five employees at the USDA's ERS service might quit rather than relocating. Yeah, I actually saw that as well. And I know we, I kind of talked about it with Mike. I don't know how many episodes ago, but a lot of people were upset that they had to move out of D.C. because I know they, you know, they built their life there and everything. Um, But they did choose the Kansas City area, which I think is kind of similar, not really similar, but kind of. It's very, it's a booming metropolis. (laughs) I think so, too. Yeah, I think Kansas City would be a good pick. It's not like they picked... Mm -hmm. I don't even, I don't want to call anywhere out. I mean, there are definitely places. Winterset, Iowa? <laughs> well, they, didn't pick, they didn't pick Winterset, so I yeah. mean. <laughs> there are definitely places that they could pick, and I'd be like, yeah, okay, I would see why you wouldn't want to relocate there. Mm-hmm. But Kansas City is, is really, yeah, is, is it an up-and-coming metropolis for sure. Yes, definitely. So, yeah, that'll be interesting to watch that unfold. And glad you mentioned the fiscal bill. Didn't know that we could see that happen either, but... I guess we'll see if they can or can't pass that to relocate or not. But mm-hmm. I would think they'd have to pass that pretty quickly because, like you said, the deadline here is, like, July, what did you say, 15th, I it think? Was, yeah, July 15th for employees to decide if yes. they want to kind of – basically they don't want to quit. And then August 1st is when they will be relocated. Yeah, so I would think they'd or have the first to – Yeah, I'd think they'd have to vote on that here pretty quickly mm-hmm. before uh, folks – do start moving to Kansas City. So quite the ordeal. Yeah. When I first yeah. read about all of this, I was like, eh, okay, whatever, government agencies coming to the Midwest. But yes, this has people just quite upset. Yeah, it really does. You wouldn't think that it would be that really that big of an issue, but it has it's been long and drawn out like crazy. It has. That it has. Well another USDA news, we saw USDA make the announcement today that they were going to be investing, continuing the infrastructure investment, but this time investing specifically in rural water and wastewater infrastructure in 29 different states across the US. They're investing a total of 192 million dollars in 71 projects across 29 states to improve not only rural water infrastructure, things like getting access to water, but also the wastewater systems that rural communities have. And this is uh, part of President Trump's goal to improve infrastructure across the U.S. in general, but primarily here, of course, in those rural areas. They are 
also as part of that 192 million dollars uh, allowing folks to apply for water and waste disposal loan and grant programs so rural communities can also use some of that funding to improve their local community issues as well. And, and they're defining rural as communities with less than 10,000 folks. So I would consider that pretty rural. Yeah, that would be. Um, but that is good that they are working towards kind of really getting people water, I guess. Um, Access to I know clean there are, drinking water. Yes. yes, and clean water, especially. Because um, I know there are towns across the U.S. and really here in Iowa that just don't really have great access to water mm. or waste management. So. Right. Absolutely. So they are making changes for that as well. So good news there. That, yes, definitely good news there. What else are you watching in the news today, Madison? Um, one thing that I... I kind of read a little bit on it yesterday, but I wasn't really sure what was going on. So I just kind of let it go to the back of my mind. And I saw another article about it today. It's a poultry price fixing lawsuit. Um, and that is one thing I never thought I'd ever see in the news. But so the U.S. food distributors have filed lawsuits against Tyson and other poultry processors, alleging that these companies kind of colluded since 2008, really, to reduce output, to reduce output and manipulate prices. Um, one article that I read said that they actually increased these companies. Each kind of agreed, basically, to increase prices by 50 percent um, for broilers, even though inputs decreased by 20 percent. And I know anybody in economics out there will say, "Well, that just does not make sense." Mm. Um, because typically if inputs decrease, then your output price is going to decrease. But um, they kind of created almost just one basic price to make these prices go up. Um, I They haven't really said why. Nobody is really commenting on the issue. And um, Tyson's, Tyson Foods, as well as... Pilgrim's Pride and Sanderson's Farms Farms are all kind of denying these allegations. Um, but there is a lawsuit in place, so we will definitely be watching that to hmm. kind of see how that plays out. Some price fixing, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Definitely. Okay. Well, the last piece of news I had for today, a little bit of a slower news day here again, it seems like. But that's chatting about the U.S.-Japanese trade deal. Of course, we know President Trump is heading to the G20 summit this week to talk specifically with President Xi, but we're also in negotiations with Japan. According to Chuck Grassley, who is not only Iowa's senior senator, but also the Senate finance chairman, he apparently told reporters that he could see a trade deal. Now, we don't know if that's just a ag-specific trade deal or a whole trade deal likely to be announced after the Japanese elections in as early as July. So that would be a really quick turnaround time here to say, yes, indeed, we do have a trade deal done. Yes, definitely. That that just seems fast because July is in what? Four days. Right. So it'd be after their elections. And I'm not sure exactly when Japan's elections are, but it uh, sounds like, 
I guess we could see something happen as early as that, but I wouldn't hold my breath quite yet for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They like to say things will happen, but they won't. They like to sell the story. Or maybe it's yes. the, the media just picking up on hints and trying to see what sells the story. But, <laughs> yes. That could be too. That's very true. Um, well, speaking of kind of Chinese trade, Canada kind of got cr- got mixed in the crossfires between US, the U.S. and China trade deal. Um, and uh, that is because China is kind of, I don't, is refusing Canadian. Canada's meat exports. Um, there were, they had found as many as 188 counterfeit veterinary health documents um, for different meats being shipped from Canada to China. And really, they are not happy with it. Um, Chinese embassy commented that there is obvious safety loopholes within this. And so right now, I guess meat is just not from Canada is not going to China. So I guess I don't know how this will affect the trade, but they really kind of in this report, they're really focusing on the U.S. trade deal and to see how that will affect it. Absolutely. Yeah. Could be good or bad for the United States yet to be seen. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, Madison, I'm all out of news. Do you have anything else for today? That is all I had. All right, well, let's hop over and look at the commodity markets. They're not very pretty today. We've been seeing a lot of volatility, of course. Maybe we're starting to see our weather premium factored out, but the folks that can definitely help you figure that out for sure are the Zaner Group folks. You give them a call today at 312-277-0050. Ask them questions. They're the ones that really know if and when it's time to maybe sell some grain. Like I said, though, not a pretty day, especially in the corn and soybean markets, maybe deciding now, okay, we're out of the rain and we're starting to see some warmer temperatures. This might be the weather premium cap we've, we're going to see for the time being. In the July corn contract, we closed down four and a quarter cent at 4.43 and a quarter. The December new crop contract lost three cents today to close at 4.54 and a half. In the soybean pits, the July contract closed down nine and a quarter cent to end at 8.94 and a half. Well, the November Gave up eight and a quarter cents on the day to end at nine eighteen and a quarter. In the wheat pits, the July contract up eight cents at five forty three and a quarter, while the December contract put on five and three quarter cent to end at five fifty six and a quarter. Hopping over into the livestock markets, green on the screen. The June live cattle contract closed up a dollar twenty five to end at one o nine even. The October up a dollar seventy to close at one o six fifty five. In the feeder cattle pits, the August contract a limit up to close at 138.82.5. The September contract not quite limit up there at 447 to close at 136.35. In the lean hog pits, it appears the Canadian news has not yet triggered any excitement in the lean hog markets with the July contract giving up 85 cents on the day to close at 73.55. The August shedding 70 cents to close at 75.47.5. And to finish up our markets today, we've got the Dairy Class 3 Milk Futures going here. June contract gave up $0.04 cents to close at sixteen twenty-seven. The July lost just a penny to close at seventeen oh three. For today's conversation, I chatted with Dr. Chad Hart about this yield drag scenario that we could be facing here in the United States. 
Well, we're continuing the economic discussion behind this year's wet weather and crop impact on farmers' balance sheets. And to do that, we've got Dr. Chad Hart, who is a jack-of-all-trades, but uh, most probably know him as an ag economist there at Iowa State University Extension. Chad, first of all, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's my pleasure to be with you. Chad, before we get into kind of the nitty-gritty of this latest farm outlook that you folks put out there at Iowa State Extension, give me an update on where we sit as with the ag economy as a whole now. I mean, when we've talked to you before, weren't looking so pretty because of trade and other impacts, but now we finally have this weather market. Folks are getting excited again. Where do we sit? Well, that's the deal. The weather market is helping, if you will, those that have bushels. Things are looking a little better now than they were even just a, a month or so ago. Um, but in general, I would say the ag economy, we're still struggling, but at least we see some lights um, you know, up in front of us. As you mentioned, crop prices have improved. We've seen the livestock industry have a pretty good six, first six months of the year. And so... You know, we're slowly, if you will, turning the corner, trying to bring an upswing to the agricultural economy. When you look at the general economy as a whole, we're we're seeing maybe the Fed considering cutting interest rates, which is usually an indication that the economy is starting to slow. Does that mean that it's it's starting to maybe turn around here for the ag economy? Because generally the ag economy is kind of the opposite of what the whole economy in the U.S. is doing as a whole. Well, that's the deal. We do tend to swing somewhat counter-cyclically from the general economy. Um, you know, I'll put it this way. We hate to see the general economy go down, but if, you know, that helps us buoy the ag economy, it can help. If you go back and look, for example, the Great Recession of 2008, there's a case where both went the ag economy and the general economy went down. The difference was the ag economy back then recovered much quicker than the general now we're hopefully looking at let's call it a slowdown in the general economy, but hopefully it doesn't you know dip into recession and so the if you will the ag economy can catch back up to the general economy and obviously part of the reason that ag economy has started to, to catch back up trade aside is really this weather market that we're dealing with, especially in the corn market. Chad, tell me a little bit about the latest report that you folks have put together there at Iowa State Extension talking about this reaction to the lost bushels. Well, you know, what we did was we get a lot of questions about, okay, what does this planting progress possibly mean as we look out there for yields at the end of the year? And so what we did was basically said, okay, let's take the historical data as far back as we can go. So this is basically, you know, as far as the crop planting data that we've got out there from USDA, it goes back to 1980. And so we looked at, if you will, what's the best fitting relationship that you find between those planting progress numbers and our final yield numbers. Estimated that, you know, it turns out to be sort of a, you know, what we call a quadratic function, you know, it's got a line with a curve in it. Because the idea is, is that if you're too far ahead or too far behind on planting progress, that tends to be a signal um, that yields are lower, whereas if you're in the sort of near the average, those where we tend to see our best yields, we fit that relationship. What we found is that given this year's record slow planting, 
we're, if you will, off the far tail end of that relationship. And it indicated a fairly sizable drop in, let's call it expected yields, because I don't want to call this a yield forecast. Um, first thing I want to caution folks is, is this relationship is a very noisy one, meaning that, you know, it could be off by 30, 40 bushels per acre on a nationwide average. And so when you look here, like I say, this model gave us a number. That number happened to be basically 135 bushels per acre for the corn side. And so well down from where USDA's trend line yield is, in fact, well down from where USDA adjusted that yield just a couple of weeks ago. But it, like I say, it's a noisy thing. And so when I look, I also look to see what are the closest years to what we're looking at this year. There are three 1983, 1993, 1995, and they were drastically different years once we got beyond planting. And I think that's the key as we're looking forward here. This year, we're going to be highly dependent upon the weather. That's why the market, I would argue, is reacting the way it has. When you look at those three years, 83, we went from wet to dry. So we went from basically flooding to drought. 93, we stayed wet continuously, cold and wet. 95 is maybe the one that we ought to hope for in that what you had was a wet spring. And then once we got past that, then we sort of fell back towards normal. In terms of those three years, 95 was the best yielding year by far. But when you look at those three years that you that you specifically picked to compare this crop year to, we're still very drastically different than those three years, as I understand it. We're still, that's the deal, we're still further behind than any of those three years show. So, you know, compared to history, we're outside the range of history right now. And explain to me, how did you pick those three years in particular? Well, like I say, those three years are the closest to what we have right okay. now. Those are the years where we've had the planting delays um, as much as we had nationwide across the country. And so those are the three that, like I say, you know, that sort of jump out. When you look at, and in the, in the article, we give a graphic to show every year between 1980 and 2018, so you can see sort of the spread here. The idea is that, like I say, those three years were the closest to what we saw in terms of planting progress to this year. What they don't tell us is, okay, or what we don't know yet is, how does our weather line up with those years as we move forward from here on out? Like I say, they give us the spread. One went too wet, one went too dry, one was sort of almost a Goldilocks and right in between. Um, but the idea is it gives us this feel for, okay, yep, the planning delays have definitely reduced yield potential, but we don't know by how much yet. Okay, that makes sense. So your yield number is you're expecting a 21% decline, which is 139 bushels per acre? 100, well, the model itself said a, a, a 21 bushel or 21 percent decline, which put around 135. Okay. Um, but I'm not. I'm again. I'm not. Gonna, that's not my projection or not my. You know. You know. That's not what I'm going to suggest that we're going to get this year. That's what this history model sort of told us. I think as we look from here on out, like I say, this was a noisy, noisy estimate. The relationship is not that tight. 
the biggest thing I'm going to be watching here from here on out is going to be that crop conditions report that we get each week as we go out here. That condition, that crop conditions model, is a much better predictor of final yield than anything that deals with planting progress. And so that's going to be the model that if you were looking for a prediction, that's the place I would, you know, that data is what I want to start to pay attention to. And how do you take that data then to try and maybe kind of sort of put together an estimate of what you think the yield will actually be for this year? Well, what most folks do, and, you know, we always key on that percentage of, of good to excellent on the crop rating. And a lot of folks fit some sort of regression, whether it's linear or not. Um, I know my favorite one, to keep it very simple, is just looking at taking that crop condition, good to excellent percentage, taking the year, so I get a trend variable in there, and just fitting a linear regression to that. And that simple sort of model actually does a pretty good job of giving you, let's call it a ballpark estimate of where national yields are going to be. I find that the best week to do that is um, week 29, which tends to be in mid to late July. Okay. And so if you you look at USDA's numbers, for example, this week's crop progress report had the crop condition, you know, corn conditions in there for week 24. So we're five weeks away from getting to that best fitting week in terms of that crop condition number. And Chad, do the, those numbers don't necessarily count though for the fields that were washed out or had to be replanted? How does all of that figure into the final yield, acreage, et cetera, equation? Well, in the, in the final yield equation, and this is the other wild card that's running through this and why the historical data may be, if you will, biased. When you think back in history over this period of time, and especially those years, 83, 93, 95, the idea is we were delayed in planting, but farmers, you know, the programs back then meant that you planted late even if you knew you were beyond the planting window because you needed to produce as many bushels as you possibly could on that ground. Here in 2019, it made some economic sense for producers to maybe take advantage of the prevented planting options in crop insurance. And so we're knocking out some fields that were going to be poor yielding fields if we planted them really late. And instead, we've removed them from the equation. What that means is the more prevented planting acres we have, the higher the national yield actually is because you're knocking out those low yielding acres. They're not being counted in the equation. And I think that's the big, well, let's call it debate we're having right now within agriculture, trying to figure out how many acres have disappeared and how that's going to impact not only just the yield, but more importantly, production. What's going to, what's our total number of bushels out there going to look like by the time we get to next fall? Absolutely. And I think the other big question that still remains on the mind of a lot of producers I've had conversations with, and, and even in my mind, weather obviously is very important to provide some volatility to the commodity markets. If we see this year and we end up in not being maybe as, as bad yield-wise as we expect, maybe we have a pretty decent yield overall, does that indicate to you that maybe we have the technology and the capabilities now to plant ourselves out of a weather market? Uh, well, I think it's something we've got to watch for here. I mean, in this case, I'm going to argue it's going to be a combination 
of weather events from here on out and yeah how we've improved the crop genetics over time i think when we look at for example the drought of 2012 we did see some benefit from the genetics we've been building in but we still saw that weather can overwhelm and reduce yields in a lot of cases i think here we're staring at okay it's been quite a while since we've had an extremely wet year how well does our crop genetics hang on there but then again Again, what does this weather pattern look like as we get out there into the crucial months of July, August? I think in this case, one of the things I know I'm most worried about here is looking at now that we push the crop back in terms of planting, in terms of development, you're looking at you know pollination happening in a hotter period of the year. You're looking at trying to reach black layer before those freeze events come in and let's face it that black layer is going to come in later because of the delays all along the board here and so we've set ourselves up for let's call it a riskier pathway to get that better yield okay so all those things considered chad one final question for you um when you look at obviously you're an economist so when you look at crop prices this year is it fairly safe to say that we're going to hit five dollar corn or do you still think that there's some possibility for some wiggle room there i think there's some wiggle room there i mean when we're looking here i think the market's been comfortable about moving up here into the upper fours but i think we're going to wait to see okay just how bad do the weather conditions continue to hamper this crop before we try to move into the five dollar range here Right now, it's all a weather-driven market. We're not seeing anything on the demand side to really push us to five, so it's going to be weather that's going to have to take us there. All right. Chad, before I let you go, how can folks find that report that we've kind of dissected here on Iowa State's website? Probably the easiest way is just go to Google and type in Iowa Farm Outlook. We should be the top link. All right. Dr. Chad Hart, Iowa State extension thank you so much for taking the time to share this new report with us thank you very much for your time well again a big thank you there to dr chad hart really interesting stuff hopefully we don't see that quite historical yield low of what did he say i think 135 139 bushels per acre but Definitely yield is going to be a concern this year, and that might give us the leg up we'll see later in the growing season, but going to be an interesting growing season, that's for sure, Madison. It definitely will be, Delaney. Yes, it will be. Well, folks, if you want to stay up to date with the latest news and agricultural happenings, you can always tune in with us on social media. Madison Honkamp is in charge of all our social media this summer as our intern. She's doing a great job at it. But Madison, tell folks how they can get involved with us. Well, Delaney, folks can definitely reach us really anywhere at Ag News Daily. Twitter, we're on Facebook and Twitter as well as Instagram. So go ahead and head over there and give us a follow. And Delaney, we even have a newer thing coming out. Hopefully soon, hopefully we'll see it come out next month. But if listeners want to stay really involved with what we're doing, especially at Global Ag Network, where it's kind of our home base, um, they should definitely kind of sign up on our website, get an account, and they will be seeing a weekly newsletter coming to them, kind of involving all of the different podcasts that we have, as well as articles and the markets and just 
a whole bunch of fun stuff. Absolutely. Good plug there, Madison. So folks, if you <laughs> head to globalagnetwork.com, there's a subscribe button there. Going to be starting a newsletter here soon, so you do want to get on the bandwagon for that. Madison, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's go.